0: On the Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about, and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronoski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub
1: Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear editor-at-large at at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Steve Pakin, the well-known host of TVO's The Agenda. He's also a first-rate historian who's written really terrific biographies of former Ontario Premiers John Robarts and Bill Davis, as well as books on the call of politics and the modern National Hockey League. Steve has a new book about former Prime Minister John Turner. The book, entitled John Turner, an intimate biography of Canada's 17th Prime Minister, tells the story of the former prime minister's fascinating career that put him at the center of some of the big political questions that shape present-day Canada. I'm grateful to speak with Steve about the book, including Turner's place in the modern mythology of liberal politics. Steve, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the book.
2: Thank you very much, and it's great to be with you again, Sean. It's, it's, it's odd because usually I have you on the program I'm doing and I ask the questions, but I'll see if I can figure this out when the when the tables are turned today.
1: John Turner, a stepson of British Columbia's Lieutenant Governor, rose to public prominence in part when he danced with Princess Margaret at a nineteen fifty-nine naval ball on Vancouver's Deadman Island, which of course led to rumors about a possible romantic relationship. In the nineteen eighty four federal election, Brian Mulroney liked to joke that, quote, when I was driving in truck. John Turner was dancing with Princess Margaret. Why don't we start with a bit of biography, help our younger listeners in particular understand Turner's early political profile. Steve, he was sometimes characterized as Canada's Kennedy, right?
2: Uh, And rightly so. He was an absolutely dazzling looking, handsome guy. These baby blue eyes that would just go right through you. He got elected in 1962 for the first time as a liberal opposition backbencher. And of course, John F. Kennedy sworn in as American president just the year before. So the comparisons were understandable. And, and you know, I, I feel quite strong in saying that a lot of people thought that that uh, John Turner had you know, political fame and fortune written all over him from the very earliest moments. I think he was 33 years old when he first got elected for the first time. So, you know, he was he was right in the wheelhouse of, of lots of political potential. He ran for the liberal leadership in 1968, defeated by the current prime minister's father. But Pierre Trudeau knew talent when he saw it, put John Turner in his cabinet as the justice minister and then the finance minister. And then the two of them had a parting of the ways over a pretty significant issue. And in 1975, he quit. And I think a lot of people thought at that point, well, the potential just wasn't realized and it isn't going to happen. But there were others who were plotting in the wings. And of course, the story picks up a decade later.
1: We'll get into some of those different threads, but I want to stay on Turner's background and how that influences the way we ought to think about him and his politics. Turner grew up in part and British Columbia, and at different times in his political career, represented a a BC riding. That makes him different than a lot of the central Canadian political leaders and prime ministers that we've had in Canada's history. How much should we think of Turner as a Westerner, and how does his attachment to British Columbia affect the way that he thought about national politics?
2: Great question, and and an important question, because, of course, so many of the prime ministers before that were from this so-called Laurentian elite You know, Montreal, Ottawa, Toronto axis. And John Turner, I think, is one of only, I'm probably going to get this wrong. I think he's one of only three prime ministers, and we've had 23, who represented three different provinces in the House of Commons. He first got elected in 62 in a Montreal riding. His riding disappeared, so he moved to the province of Ontario and ran in an Ottawa riding. And then when he came back in 1984, he ran in Vancouver Quadra and he won every personal election. Uh, that he stood for in his particular constituencies uh, i think mackenzie king and wilford laurier were the only other prime ministers to have served in three different provinces and and i think you touch on something very important here which is that john turner very much felt like um a product of western canada he very much had his prime ministership lasted longer than 79 days i think we would have seen a different way of governing a way of governing that was very much more inclusive of western canada which has always I think eluded liberal prime ministers, uh, you know, from well, it depends how far you want to go back, but maybe all the way to the beginning. Uh, and 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 he his understanding of not just the West but of the North. This is a guy, Sean, who used to take his family on canoe trips further north than any white family in the history of the country. Uh, you know, up to Baffin Island, for goodness' sakes, and Northwest Territories. And he'd seen places that only Indigenous Canadians had seen. And as a result, I think all of that combined, the Western influence, the Northern influence, had he been able to serve longer, would have made for a very different kind of prime minister.
1: Turner is sometimes characterized as a more centrist and even conservative figure when it came to, say, economic policy compared to Pierre Trudeau and other senior liberal voices of the era. I think, for instance, of Turner's decision to step down as finance minister rather than implement price and wage controls. Do you want to talk a bit about Turner's economic philosophy and uh, perhaps more concretely, what was it in his worldview that made him a big L liberal rather than, say, a progressive conservative?
2: You know, if you made that Venn diagram, there'd be a heck of a lot of overlap between the blue grit that John Turner was earlier in his career and, you know, say, a a red Tory like Bill Davis. And it's interesting because the two of them are born a month apart. and, And so they come of a certain generation where there might not be that much difference between those two things. Yeah, back in the day, back in in the 60s and 70s, the Liberal Party was very different from the way it is today. There was a blue grit wing, you know, with its eye on deficits and uh, much more concerned about the business community. And there was a sort of a social justice, more left wing wing of the party, uh, which, of course, uh, Pierre Trudeau represented and, and was much more along the lines of, let's implement lots of big social programs and that kind of thing. But but I wouldn't want to exaggerate that because when John Turner came back to public life in 1984, having been on Bay Street, having become more conservative, having because he was on Bay Street, when he came back in 1984, I think, and particularly in 1988, when he ran that campaign against Brian Mulroney's free trade agreement, that was an indication that uh, although you might describe him as a business liberal, that didn't mean a blank check for the United States. And he was very concerned about Canadian sovereignty. He was very concerned about making sure uh, that we uh, retained control of our water. He was always adamant that he thought the United States was going to come after our water. And we better be careful not to let that happen. So, you know, he doesn't fit necessarily nicely into one of those boxes that he's, he's definitely a blue grit. Or, I mean, I wouldn't go so far as to say he was a social democratic liberal. But he had more left leaning in him, I think, than more people gave him credit for.
1: We'll come to the 88 election in a minute, but I want to take up something you, you raised earlier, which is departure from politics for, the book reminds me, almost a decade before returning to take over as Liberal Party leader in the lead up to the 1984 election. A common narrative, Steve, as you well know, is that in the intervening time, Turner's political acumen and skill had atrophied a bit, that he had failed to keep up with the new modern political developments and felt a bit dated. Is that your sense? And if so, is there something that someone like Mark Carney can learn from Turner's experience? Okay, let's go with those one at a
2: time. First of all, that is not only my sense, but that is the sense of, I think, everybody who knew him at the time. You know, he'd been this rising star until he left and resigned from Trudeau's cabinet in 1975. And then he went to Bay Street and he became like the quintessential English-Canadian lawyer, corporate director. I mean, life was just fantastic for him and his family. Then he made tons of money. He was probably on 16 different boards of directors. I mean, he really was hot stuff. And he stayed on Bay Street at a firm then called Macmillan Bench. It's still around. It's called Macmillan LLP today. And he stayed there from 1975 to 1984 when he just could not resist the siren call from so many liberals to come back into public life and rescue the Liberal Party from its record low unpopularity at that time, right? Pierre Trudeau was now going on, whatever it was, 15 years as prime minister, and, uh, you know, people had had enough. Um, Mr. Turner, unfortunately, when he was in the private sector, really let his skills atrophy. That's a good word. His French wasn't nearly as good as it used to be. He was not as... He was not as in touch with the Liberal Party as he needed to be, right? This party was now Pierre Trudeau's party. It was a very different party from the party he would have created had he beat Trudeau in the 1968 Leadership Convention. And and furthermore, he took some very curious positions on some very important issues to Liberals. For example, the Liberals were always the number one party in Canada when it came to protecting minority language rights. And yet, at his very first press conference, when he threw his hat into the ring in eighty-four. Some journalist asked him, what about this situation in Manitoba where there's a controversy over whether or not to respect francophone rights and have all the laws translated into French? And and John Turner's answer was, well, I think language rights are a provincial responsibility, so I wouldn't get involved there. That shocked liberals. And even better for conservatives, Brian Mulroney, francophone from Quebec, jumped right into that space and said, well, we'll protect the liberals won't do it. If John Turner won't do it, we'll protect those minority language rights in the province of Manitoba. And that that, I mean, that was a game changer right there before the before Turner had even won the leadership. That was a big game changer. So Sean Conway, the former Ontario MPP, had a great expression. He said that when Mr. Turner came back into public life in 1984, he wasn't, quote, tournament tough. He'd just been on the sidelines for too long. He was too rusty. His political antennae weren't good. He made too many mistakes. And therefore, and and combine all that with the fact that he went up against arguably the greatest campaigner in the last 50 years in Brian Mulrooney, And it's not surprising that he led the liberals to their worst showing at that point
1: ever. Turner really finds his voice in the 1980 election on the free trade question, which setting aside the political dynamics, it might be a bit of a surprise since, as we discussed earlier, fairly or unfairly, Turner had a reputation for being to the right of some of his liberal contemporaries on economic matters. Do you want to talk a bit about his decision to ultimately oppose free trade? Was it a principled one? Or was it mostly driven by political consideration?
2: No, I think it definitely was a principled one. And and let's let's remember this because he had that background on Bay Street. John Turner was not hostile to free trade. Uh, you know, so many of his clients were American clients, and he was doing plenty that would have constituted free trade between Canada and the United States. What he was against was that deal, and. After the deal came out and was made public, and I don't know how I can't remember how long it was. I mean, it was more than a thousand pages long. He went on a ski va- vacation with his family and he took the agreement with him and he read every single page of that agreement. And he came back with an agreement that was dog-eared, that had posted notes in the margins, you know, got a follow-up on this. This will be a question-in-question period. He went through that agreement like a, with a fine-tooth comb and and made the conclusion that it wasn't free trade he was against. It was this agreement that he didn't like. He really feared that this agreement would sort of create these North South, almost like a vacuum cleaner, right? Like that it would hoover up all of that relationship economically and that the, the ties that bound us East West would, would suffer. And therefore he thought this was going to affect Canadian sovereignty he wasn't satisfied that we had an adequately good dispute settlement mechanism as a part of the agreement he thought that the american congress would never uh give up its power to have final say over these treaties and that uh, and that it was uh, too weak a dispute settlement mechanism in the agreement and as a result he went up against it now you know if you compare that and and for that decision he got a lot of liberals on his side and, as you point out, almost won that 1988 election. If the election had been two weeks shorter, he probably would have won it. But Mulrooney and the conservatives absolutely destroyed him in the last two weeks, two, three weeks of the election campaign. And as a result, he lost again. But if you compare that to Meech Lake, where he sided with Brian Mulroney on a constitutional agreement that he thought was on the right side of history, but which his party was overwhelmingly against. These are two things on which I think he took principled positions. One of them liberals really appreciated him being with free trade. The other one, they absolutely would not support him and it helped to doom his relationship with his party, namely the Meech Lake constitutional accord.
1: I was surprised to discover from the book that he remained in parliament until 1993, even though he was replaced as party leader in 1990. As you know, as well, or frankly, better than anyone. That's a bit uncommon in modern politics. What led him to remain a parliamentarian? And based on your research, what was his experience like during that period?
2: The most controversial thing about his time in that period was that he actually took a position against his own party leader, Jean Chrétien, whom he had defeated in 1984 and with whom he had a pretty terrible relationship. They were simply rivals every step of the way. Once Mr. Turner came back into public life in 1984, and on the issue of the, um, uh, of the war in Iraq, um, you know, Mr. Turner, no, let me, let me get this chronology right. I think it was the Gulf War. It was the Gulf War at this point. Uh, Mr. Turner said, you know, w- we got to be with NATO. We got to be with our allies on this. And, um, Sean Kretsch and the liberals were far too lukewarm on it. Um, and as a result, it was a, it was a problem f- between Kretsch and Turner yet again. So that was a problem. And you know what? Mr. Turner didn't have any problem giving a speech in the House of Commons opposing his own party because he thought his own party was wrong on this one. And he paid for it. He was a former prime minister. And, you know, the I think it was the whip who actually kicked him out of his office and moved him into a, if if everybody wants an office downtown, so to speak, they moved him way out to the suburbs. So he was punished for taking that position. Why did he want to hang around? Because he's a House of Commons man. That was the expression back in the day. He thought the big debates in the country happened in Parliament. He thought Parliament was where the action was. He'd been elected as the MP for Vancouver Quadra for a second time. He felt he owed it to his electors not to quit, not to quit on election night after he'd lost that that second election. And so he hung in there and he stayed to the end of his term. Now, he didn't show up as often, obviously, as he did before. But he stayed as an MP until 1993, until the following, the subsequent federal election. And and I think it says everything you need to hear about John Turner, that he respected parliament and democracy so much that he wanted to serve out the whole term.
1: I know it's a counterfactual, Steve, but I can't help but ask it. What kind of prime minister do you think Turner would have been had he been elected in 1984? Would he, for instance, uh, ran with the McDonald Commission report that was released in, in 1995 and formed the basis of? the Mulroney government's economic direction with trade and privatization, et cetera, or do you think we would have gotten something quite different?
2: That is such a great question, and it's one that I pondered a lot uh, as I wrote the book because, I mean, the obvious thing is we're never going to know. But the other thing is, it's a hard question to answer because John Turner was so rusty when he came back into public life, he didn't take good advice well. There were a lot of people who offered him bad advice, and he took that. So his political antennae were not good, which makes me think, had he been able to win that election by some crazy freak, or fluke, I should say, you know, would he really have been a great prime minister? I don't know. They often said, people often said to me, you know, he'd take lots of advice from lots of different people, and whoever the last person was to give him advice, the last person to leave the room, that's the way he'd go. Well, that's not great leadership, you know, and- and. You know, I don't know if he did that because he was so insecure in his own lack of, you know, uh, lack of understanding of politics in 1984 because he'd been away too long or what. It's a curious thing. You know, he was a great cabinet minister. We, we have, you know, when he was justice minister, he brought in the bill to make abortion legal under some circumstances in Canada. When he was justice minister, LGBTQ rights became a thing. I mean, homosexuality was outlawed before John Turner made it legal. Um, so he, he, you know, the notion that he didn't have political skill is absolutely wrong, but it seems that his best moments took place before he left and went into the private sector. And when he came back, well, look at the worst decision he made was calling that snap election. And he made it, Sean, because he saw what happened in 1968 when Pierre Trudeau won the leadership and then almost instantly called a snap election, took advantage of Trudeau mania and won a majority government that the liberals had not previously had. What did John Turner do? He did the same thing. The only difference was, there was no Turner mania in the land. In fact, Liber- people were quite tired of the liberals by then. And the support that he had was a mile wide and an inch deep, and it just wasn't that strong. And the people who were telling him, John, get a seat in the House of Commons, be prime minister for a while. There are lots of Canadians who don't know who you are. You've been out of public life for a decade. Get in there, let them see you do the job. Meet with the Pope, meet with the Queen. There was a a papal and royal visit coming that summer of 1984. Meet with them, do the job for a while, let people see you do the job. He rejected that very good advice and he remembered Pierre Trudeau's example. He called that snap election. And as a result, he was prime minister for 79 days and 79 days only, making him the second shortest serving prime minister in Canadian history.
0: You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca, now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive into the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of the Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program.
1: You alluded to his rivalry and relationship with Jean chretien I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about his relationship with Pierre Trudeau. Uh, in reading the book and preparing for this interview, I was reminded of his decision to resigned in 1975 and the and the controversy that that decision produced. Do you want to talk a bit about those kind of fundamental relationships in this era of Canadian politics?
2: Sure. One of the reasons, Sean, I wanted to write this book is that um, a couple of people who worked for Mr. Turner when he came back into public life after 1984 said, Steve, you knew him. And it's true. I covered the 84 convention. Um our birthdays were two days apart, and so we used to go out for lunch together on our birthdays. This is this is after he got out of public life. I, I, I didn't do that during public life, but after he got out of politics, we sort of became friendlier. And, and you know, those lunches were great because he would, you know, he'd answer your questions. And I'd ask him about some real steamy stuff from back in the day, and he'd talk to you about it. And on the issue of Trudeau versus Gretchen, this was one of the things that we returned to a number of times because... You know, I reminded him, you resigned from Pierre Trudeau's cabinet. I mean, clearly, you had a difficult relationship with him. And he said, no, no, actually, we got on okay. You know, we had a fundamental disagreement on wage and price controls. But in the main, Pierre Trudeau respected me. I respected him. We got along well. Uh, You know, Pierre Trudeau was obviously the king of of French Canada. But Trudeau understood that John Turner was the king of English Canada. And, you know, during the War Measures Act, during 1970, there was his Justice Minister, John Turner. Remember the the War Measures Act comes in under his name. He's the Justice Minister who brings it in. And Pierre Trudeau wanted him in the room and wanted him, wanted his advice on how English Canada would, would react to all of that. So his relationship with Pierre Trudeau after it's all said and done was pretty good, according to him. With Chrétien, the exact opposite. They were friendly when they were in Pierre Trudeau's cabinet, right? There's this, there's actually this great picture, famous picture in Ottawa of Lester Pearson, the prime minister, and these guys beside him, Justice Minister Trudeau, Solicitor General, I guess, at the time, or maybe not even that, maybe Consumer Minister Turner and Minister Without Portfolio, Chrétien, standing with him. So you get the prime minister and three future prime ministers all in one shot. And at that time, Turner and Chrétien got along pretty well. But when Mr. Turner came back out of private life in 1984 and ran against Jean Chrétien for the liberal leadership and Chrétien thought, who is this guy? He's not very good. He hasn't been around for the last 10 years. I've been here doing the heavy lifting. I'm way better than him. And yet liberals were supporting Turner. Liberals, I mean, he won on the second ballot, right? It wasn't that close. That just was the beginning of the end. And frankly, the Chrétien people at that moment resolved to do whatever they could to destroy Turner. And they did. They were a terribly disloyal lot, I have to say. And they really made his life miserable. But then what are you going to say? A lot of it is timing. Chrétien came in in 1990, became the leader, won three straight majorities because you know people had had enough of the Tories at that point. So Turner's timing was bad. Chrétien's timing was good. And the rest is history.
1: <laughs> the election of Justin Trudeau as Liberal Party leader in 2013, seemed to represent a genuine generational change in the party. Even successful Liberal leaders like Cretchen seemed a bit removed from not just the internal machination of Liberal politics, but even the myths and stories that Liberals told themselves about themselves. What about Turner? What, if any, kind of purchase does he have in the modern Liberal Party's conception of itself?
2: Well, I would say not much anymore. And and for this reason, I think that 1984 convention really was the beginning of a civil war inside the federal liberal party. And from that moment on, you were either a Turner liberal or a Chrétien liberal. Or after that, you were either a Chrétien liberal or a Paul Martin liberal, right? And even after that, you know, you were a Michael Ignatieff liberal or you were a Bob Ray liberal. And these cleavages existed in the liberal party for decades. And the one thing you have to give Justin Trudeau credit for is that he won the leadership of his party with, I think, what was it? It was like 85% of the vote, maybe 90. I can't remember now, but it was way up there. And he said, we're not Turner liberals anymore. We're not Martin liberals. We're not Cretchan liberals. We are liberals, period, full stop. And it really took the liberal party having historically awful elections, as they did finally in 2011 under Michael Ignatiev, the worst showing ever third place finish. That had never happened before. It took that much disaster for liberals to finally pay heed to that message that, you know, we we can't be factionalized liberals anymore. We've got to be united liberals. Now, on the one hand, I guess you've got to say that's a good thing because party unity is always a good thing. And this party is very unified around its current leader and his particular ideological bent. And let's face it, it it is today the liberal party a a party with one wing it is not a bird with two wings anymore it is a it is a quasi social democratic party that believes in considerable state intervention and you know anybody the the liberal party used to be a party that was a big red tent if you're pro-life or pro-choice you were welcomed in that tent not any longer you got to be pro-choice now on the abortion issue so it's a very different party now than the one that john turner was involved with and as a result, I'm not sure John Turner would be completely comfortable with the current incarnation of the Liberal Party because it doesn't have those two wings. It has one wing now. The business wing of the Liberal Party basically doesn't exist anymore. And um, I don't know. Historians can decide whether we're better or worse off for that. Um, I don't know. I won't weigh in on that. But it's but it, it definitely is. It's a single-tiered party today, which makes it different from it, the way it always was in the past.
1: What do you think John Turner's political legacy is? how should we place him in the broader history history of the defining questions of the latter quarter of the 20th century how steve do you think we he ought to be remembered
2: well interestingly enough despite the fact he was prime minister of the country i'm not sure that being prime minister for 79 days entitles you to be remembered for your prime ministerial legacy i'm not sure there's much there you can point to to say oh you know john turner was the prime minister and therefore we got x y and Z. and so as i considered that question for the book I said to myself, what's what's really his overarching, lasting legacy? And I would say democracy. I would say this is a guy who used to go into his 70s and 80s into schools and talk to young people about the importance of democracy, the importance of standing for parliament, the importance of getting involved in politics. He used to say, democracy doesn't happen by accident. You've got to participate. And as a House of Commons man, quote unquote, that's what he loved to do. He absolutely, in his his DNA, believed in the importance of Canadian parliamentary democracy. He thought we were blessed in this country to enjoy a system of government which had personal freedom at its core, but also an obligation and an understanding that we had to do well by each other as well. Um, Economic, you know, the the importance of of a strong and buoyant economy, the importance of good relations with our American neighbors while at the same time having a wary eye, down south so that we maintain our sovereignty that's all part and parcel you know i remember he was asked once what's the best thing you ever did in public life and interestingly enough it wasn't something he did as justice minister it wasn't something he did as finance minister it wasn't something he did as consumer minister it wasn't something he did as solicitor general it wasn't something he did as prime minister you had to go to 2004 he was chosen by paul martin to lead a 500 strong delegation of Canadians to go over to Ukraine and oversee the presidential elections in Ukraine. And he did. And they got to the end of the elections and he was able to report back to Prime Minister Martin and the world that thanks to the oversight of many countries including Canada and including our delegation over there, which went to ridings, they called them oblasts, they went to ridings all over the country and they made sure the election was clean and the outcome was just. And as he looked back on that years later, he said, I think that's the best thing I ever did. Now, how many prime ministers would say to you, the best thing I ever did in public life was nothing I did when I was a prime minister or in cabinet, but rather something as a private citizen. I think that tells you a lot about the man and about number one, how much he cared about Ukraine and the democracy they were trying to build at the time. And number two, how absolutely mortified he'd be today were he alive to see what Russia is doing in that country. He'd
1: have been appalled. Let me ask a penultimate question. What if anything surprised you through this process? As you mentioned earlier Steve, you, you knew John Turner, but what did you learn about him as you worked on the book?
2: Learned about him and surprised are two different things and I'll I'll answer it this way. I remember covering all this stuff back in the day and I remember watching it back in the day how the knives came out for this guy not from the back. You know, they didn't stab him in the back Sean. They stabbed him in the front. They stabbed him in the side. They stabbed him in the back. Like Liberals went after this guy, holus bolus, and it was shocking at the time. You got to remember, in the middle of the 1988 leader, um, election, in the middle of the 88 election, <laughs> there was a meeting held by senior liberals to try to depose John Turner, to take him out and to somehow install Jean Chrétien as the, liber- as the liberal leader in the middle of an election campaign. And Brian Mulroney was already with his line. You know, if it had happened... Chrétien was going to show up to the leaders debate. Mulrooney was going to look over at him and say, how did you end up here? (laughs) So I think one of the things that I'm reminded of, having looked in the archives and seen the secret memos that went back and forth at the time, I'm reminded of (laughs) and uh, just how shocking it was that he had to put up with the kind of internecine warfare in that party at that time, because one of the truisms in liberal politics was loyalty to the leader. And you got to figure, you know, it worked the liberals in power, you know, 85 of the first 120 years of the country's birth. And, you know, loyalty to the leader had a lot to do with that. Well, there was no loyalty to John Turner. And, and, to, and to, you know, constantly be reminded of all of the terrible things he had to endure during his prime ministership, which I've chronicled in the book, and which having got access to archives that nobody else has seen, uh, really puts a lot of meat on that bone. I'm still astonished by what people did back then. It was just astonishing. That's the word for it.
1: My final question is a bit of a Homer question. Steve, I think you know that I grew up in Thunder Bay and have spent time in Kenora and Lake of the Woods. Why don't you talk about Turner's personal connection to the region? He spent a lot of time at Lake of the Woods, I understand.
2: Well, he inherited that love of that part of the province of Ontario, uh, which is so far away from both capital cities in Ontario that it's in a different time zone. Uh, Kenora Lake of the Woods, that was, that was his wife's place. His wife is from Winnipeg. Jill Turner was from Winnipeg. And as a result, Winnipeg to Kenora, it's just a couple of hours. And, you know, if you live in Winnipeg, you often, a lot of people have cottages in Northwestern Ontario and, you know, to get there from Toronto or from Ottawa, uh, you know, that was a real feat of logistics. I mean, they used to have to, it took a day to pack everything up and it took two often three days to get everything up there. But he was a different guy at Lake of the Woods. You got to remember, this guy was the, he started his political career as the parliamentary secretary to the Minister of Northern Affairs. So he had a love for the North that was probably unrivaled in the country by anybody else, Any, certainly any other, any other Southerner for sure. And the canoe trips that the family took up there, the time he spent at Lake of the Woods, it was just, he never felt more Canadian than when he was up there looking at the gorgeous landscape of Northern Canada. And I think as well, he was he was a different father when he was up there. He could be a different husband up there. He got away from all of the political storm and drang, And he was able, you know, I remember his kids telling me for the book, they, they said, my dad would just sit on the porch and he'd look at the trees and he'd look at the water and he'd do it for hours. And he wasn't bored. He just was, he was just dazzled by how gorgeous the landscape was up there. And so it was hugely important to him, even late in life when he could barely walk anymore. You know, there was a time late in life when he lost his health and he needed a walker to get around. And somehow they still managed to get him into a kayak or into a canoe and go out for a paddle. And, you know, I'm willing to say he was never happier than when he was either in the House of Commons or in Northwestern Ontario, the land of your birth. It just filled his soul. Well this
1: has just been a wonderful conversation Steve you've done the transition from host to guest masterfully almost as masterfully as you've written this book John Turner An Intimate Biography of Canada's 17th Prime Minister Steve Paken thank you for joining us at Hub Dialogues
2: Really great to be with you Sean thank you so much
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues brought to you by The Hub Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcasts with friends and family, subscribe wherever you get your audio online and leave us a rating and review. We greatly appreciate your feedback and comments. I'm the Hub's executive director Rudyard Griffiths, the host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's editor at large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronowski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.